0: Welcome to the Philia Podcasts. We are the daughters of those women who came before us. It is our absolute honour to have
1: met so many incredible women fighting for the liberation of us all. Our role at Philia is to amplify the voices of those women via the Filia Conference and these podcasts. Please take from them what you can. In sisterhood and in solidarity,
0: the Philia team.
1: Welcome to the Philia Podcasts. I am delighted today to be joined by Raquel Rosario Sanchez, who is a feminist writer, campaigner and researcher, and she is Phileas' spokeswoman. I suspect a great many listeners will likely already be familiar with you, Raquel, and your amazing work,
0: but would you mind just introducing yourself? Uh, Yes, of course. Uh, Thank you very much uh, for having me, and obviously thank you very much Cecilia for welcoming welcoming me into the team. My name is Raquel Rosario Sanchez, and I am a writer, I am a campaigner, and I am a researcher from the Dominican Republic. My work centers on ending uh, male violence against girls and women, and, and, yeah, in every single facet of what I do, I try to address the struggle to end male violence against women, yeah.
1: Amazing. Well, thank you so much for, for the work you do. Um, I thought we would start with just some very general uh, questions, if that's okay. And the first one is, uh, how did you become a feminist?
0: How did I become a feminist? I think that from a very early age, I decided that there was a lot of oppression, um, discrimination and injustice. That happened to girls and women, and I wanted to be a part of the change to eradicate that. I just, I was a very aware child. Um, my eyes were very open to things that were happening in the world. So I realized from a very early age that there are fights to be fought, and those could be uh, women's rights and racial issues. They could be, you know income inequality, all that type of stuff. But I decided, you know, my energy should depend on women's rights. And uh, it it was not a a linear uh, projection. I thought that I wanted to be a lawyer because I wanted to study international law. And on an international level, I wanted to be sort of this amazing women's rights lawyer who would just like tackle all these things internationally Then I was like yeah but law school is so boring <laughs> 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 but this is kind of boring and I feel like I already know all of this and so then I ended up finding um something that was more direct and then through college what I did is that I I minored in women's studies then I did a master's degree in women gender and sexuality study and now I'm doing my PhD in gender and violence so essentially I did ended up doing what I wanted to do growing up which is just fight for women's rights on an international level but it just it became a a thick-sack way of going about it. Mm.
1: But quite an interesting one I think. Yeah and you mentioned your PhD work I think correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it it aims to bring more attention to kind of male culpability in the context of the sex trade and its abuse of women. Would you be able to tell us a little bit more about that?
0: Yeah. So, my PhD is on online communities for men who pay for sex. So, there are these online communities where sex buyers talk about their experiences as sponsors, as men who pay for sex. And... They started in England uh, with two specific sites. One is called UK Pontin, and the other one is called Puntinet. And what men would do, the men who visit the community, is that they would visit a woman in prostitution and afterwards they decided that they wanted to review the women. It's an online forum where people share their experiences, similar to trip advisors or something. But instead of uh, reviewing a car, you're reviewing a woman. It is very like a formula. They would talk about the environment of the place where the sexual encounter took place. They would review the, the woman herself, you know, like her body, that type of stuff. And then they would also review the the experience of pain sex. And the purpose of that is to to let other sex buyers know what they thought about this woman and they get to rate the woman positively, negatively or in a neutral way, then it's all about essentially broadcasting to other men, signaling to other men who they consider to be uh, a woman that they should visit or they, they should not visit. But also it's about building bonds with other men, so it's about constructing and reinforcing their own sense of masculinity. Is this something that's been looked at quite extensively before? So for my master's degree, I researched the first online communities for sex buyers, so that was UK continent, internet. Um and I think at that point I was the first one to do that for academically. I could be wrong, but what I'm doing for my PhD is that I'm looking at, those, at online communities for men who pay for sex, but now I'm looking at it in different contexts based on, this could change, but based on legal framework. I mean... These online communities are not only, they originated in the UK, but now you have them in Spain, now you have them in Argentina, now you have them in Israel, now you have them in other countries. And and I think that we can, it's extremely important that we research this content because for such a long time, and this is deliberate, but for such a long time the focus has been kept on the women who are in prostitution, the prostituted women, and there has been not a lot of focus on the men who are paying for sex. And the opportunity that opens up with these online communities for sex buyers is that we get to hear from them about their motivations, what is driving them, what would deter them, how does this work in the family, in their work context, you know, like how do they conceive themselves as um as men, you know, through this interaction with the sex industry, when obviously for deliberate the reasons, they wish that no one ever talked about it. But I got their first. Yeah, I'm glad
1: someone is shining a spotlight on this because I think that is, a, in my view, one of the big issues in the sense that it, the men who are the perpetrators become almost, like you say, invisible like, in my view, it just becomes almost treated as though it's some sort of inevitable force of nature, this, this is just what happens kind of thing, instead of anyone actually scrutinizing, no, these are, these are men who are doing this, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, and there's a a whole um, industry of myths and language, which is meant to desensitize People from the topic, you know, like there's all of these myths of, oh, well, it's prostitution but the oldest profession in the world, or there will always be prostitution, so we should just like regulate it instead of trying to abolish it. It's all of these myths that are meant to uh, promote the idea that this is all inevitable, and if it is inevitable, then why even investigate it? But when you look at the online community for sex fires, what you realize is that these are all choices that men are making, like we talk a lot about the choices of women, the alleged choices of women. But if you think about it, it's like it's the men who have all of these sets of choices, like they get to decide, you know, which time of the month do I go to visit prostituted women? They get to decide like if they do it in the morning, if they do it in the evening, you know, if they tend to do it in the morning because that way they can get an alibi if they're married, half of them are usually married, you know. Um, What are they going to say to partner or with a partner you know Like, like they get to make all of these choices in their heads about how they're going to go about paying women for sex and there's also like there are all of these myths about like oh well this is all acceptable because these are women's choices to be there so this is all any like any other business but when you read what they're saying like it is possible that it's a little bit more complex than that yeah but I
1: do think it's interesting, just from what you're saying, that basically on one hand, we're supposed to believe that it's all the women who are making all the choices and have this freedom and whatnots. Um, but for the men, it's just some sort of, again, just there's no actual scrutiny, despite the fact that that they are the ones, like you're saying, actually deciding to go out. and and seek access to women's bodies in this particular way.
0: And as long as you keep feminism, and as long as you keep women talking in circles about is it a choice for the women, is it not a choice for the women, then you're going to stay there forever. That's not a debate that you're ever going to win, and it's just meant to confuse people, and it's meant to sort of create um, a barrier to people actually understanding what the sex trade, the sex industry is about. But once you get past the whole, like, is it a choice for her or not, and you examine what the men are doing and what the men are saying, and that is the purpose of my research and my PhD research at the moment, once you take a look at what the men are saying, then, then you're confronted with a reality that is not so easily dismissible. And I think that what I'm hoping to get through my work is to try to shine a light on a, on, a, on a population which is responsible for so much because the, the women's lives in the sex trade, they don't end the second that the sex buyers leave. You know, it's like the repercussions for the women are drastic and immense. And then the repercussions of having an industry that depends and relies on the exploitation of women that has a lot of impact on the status of women in society. So I am hoping that through this research, we get to examine the actors with the most agency and with the most power in this action. And then people get to decide what they believe politically about prostitution. But we cannot have um, an informed debate if the most crucial element of it remains obscured.
1: And mm. but I think like like you sh- kind of saying that it's it's done deliberately so that we're looking at the exploited rather than the exploiters. Yeah. And then you can carry on with the abuse.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean because if you think about it is you end up with in the in the media overwhelmingly, you end up hearing the voices of the women who are privileged enough to be a presence in the media, to be in touch with journalists, to be in touch with newspapers, to get the magazines and, the, and all of the... Uh, to, to have a voice, you know, you you get the voices of people who have the opportunity to have a public voice, but, but oftentimes you don't hear from from survivors you don't hear their stories that, as much and and least of all like you often never hear from sex buyers because according to the sex industry they don't exist you know this is the, the midst of the sex industry is that this is an industry that sort of exists propelled only by one side of of the seller and buyer transaction you know like it has been very astute to make women the faces of prostitution. Because I think if, if you make sex buyers the face of prostitution, then I think that the responses that people will have and the reactions that people will have and obviously the political repercussions of, of that public opinion would be drastically altered. I agree. And I think that's pr- probably why
1: it's been, um, why it's, it's something that they probably don't want to have a light, a light shown on, if that makes any sense. But I am excited to do it. I mean, thank you.
0: No, but like, I was just thinking that it's hilarious because it's like, if you think about, like through all of these issues that I have encountered here in the UK, it's like, you think that trans activists are bad. It's like, they haven't even found out that I'm doing work on like the sex industry. I'm I'm guessing I'm going to get some pushback from that. So it's all going to be kind of relative. But no, I'm, I'm very determined that this research has to be done. I will do it, and, and I will continue that work. You know, it doesn't end with the PhD. The PhD is a, is a part of the project. It's a stepping stone. But this, I'm, I'm I'm continuing this work beyond that, in spite of it, you know. It's just going to happen.
1: Speaking of your experiences and PhD, you're at Bristol University, and some listeners might know already that there have been a few issues that have arisen while you've been doing your studies um would you mind just talking about your experiences with bristol university and then i think i'm going to ask you about what you think that says about feminism proper feminism in academia more generally
0: yeah my my experience at the university of bristol has become um like a chapter in my life, a separate chapter that I didn't plan to include um, when I came to the UK to do this PhD. Um, There are some aspects of it that I cannot talk about because it's an ongoing process. Um, Mm. the, The internal university procedures are closed, but now we begin the process outside of the University of Bristol, and that's obviously the most important one. Um, I came to the UK because I wanted to be at that Center, Center for Gender and Violence Research and it it was like a dream come true, you know, it just felt like I remember walking into campus and I would see the name, oh, the University of Bristol and I would just feel like goosebumps, you know, and I would just feel like I was walking on cloud nine and over the past few years my life has become a nightmare, you know. Because yeah, it's just a different levels of disappointment and and sadness, you know. Um, so what happened is that not only am I a researcher and a feminist writer, but I am also an activist and a campaigner. So I've, I've been a campaigner before, you know, when I was uh, when I was doing my master's degree in women, gender, and sexuality studies, I campaigned for the equal rights amendment to get women's sex-based protections in the Constitution in the United States. I campaigned for that in Oregon, and we actually won. Um, So I've been a a student activist and a campaigner before, and when I came to the UK, very soon after I came to the UK, I was invited to share a meeting for Women's Place UK in Bristol. It was on the basis that I was already um, relatively well-known as a feminist writer. So I came to Bristol, and this was really very, very soon after I came to the UK. So students at the University of Bristol started a campaign of vilification, um, which was centered, interestingly, centered around me, even though there were other speakers on that panel, and I was not even a speaker, but they centered it around me. And And i mean from my point of view i had just gotten to the country you know i was an immigrant i had just gotten this opportunity you know on a scholarship to go study at this elite university you know like i was just so frightened that this could have lasting repercussions for me and i thought that it was unacceptable to have what appeared to be hundreds and hundreds of people just engaging in this pylon to target me because I had the temerity to share a meeting to talk about women's rights. Um, so that escalated and the students were not able to find us because the, the political climate in the United Kingdom at that moment is that women were not even allowed to have public meetings to discuss women's rights. So we were able to carry on the meeting But then after that, students at the University of Bristol, especially the so called feminist society, put forth a motion trying to which attempted to ban Serfs, essentially ban women, from speaking on campus at all. And at the assembly assembly general meeting for the Bristol issue, students voted in favor of the motion and that motion passed. Like students voted to ban from speaking, I think that that, was, that motion was a retaliation for the fact that they were unable to cancel our meeting. Um, so after mm-hmm. that, look at the policies at the University of Bristol, and the policies are absolutely clear. This is all unacceptable. You are not permitted to bully people. You are not permitted to harass people. You are not permitted to sort of launch this painful certification against who, people who are essentially your colleagues. You know, So I filed a student complaint against the students at the University of Bristol who did that. And the university opened, eventually, reluctantly, opened the to address it. And that process took over 18 months. And one of the key problems with that process is that at no point did they call the students to stop bullying me or to stop harassing me, so when I went around the UK continuing to do my work as a writer, as a trainer, going to events in different parts of town, uh, organizing events not only inside of the University of Bristol but also outside of the University of Bristol. Everywhere I went they just kept targeting me, you know, as long as that process was open, students at the University of Bristol just kept targeting me at different events inside and outside of the university. And, and that obviously had a drastic impact, not only on my overall health, but also on my academic performance. And the ramifications and the repercussions of that in my life were severe, you know? Like I was on a scholarship, my academic performance was so impaired that it put that in address. you know, and, it, and, and also my immigration status. Um, and eventually what the university did is that They open up disciplinary procedures based on the charges that the students who did that to me were engaging in bullying, harassment, and unacceptable behavior, among others. And then they closed the procedures denying that any bullying took place. And they said that essentially, well, essentially they blamed me and they tried to, yeah, they essentially sort of backtrack on every single thing that they had said. So let's leave it at that. And obviously um, that's unacceptable, you know, because essentially they they allowed bullying, harassment and unacceptable behavior to take place, number one. Mm. Number two, they put me in a position in which in which I became sort of this abusable person on campus, you know, so so people are free to bully me, people are free to harass me, just because you don't have uh, the courage to stand up to student activists. That's disgusting, Um, and obviously that needs to be challenged.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I'm so sorry about the fact that this has happened to you.
0: And it's so different from like what I was expecting when I was coming to the UK. Like to me, it was just like, I couldn't believe that this was happening to me. I couldn't believe that this was my life, you know, that I got to be at this university, you know? Like all my education has been state education and it has been great education. I've had like excellent teachers, excellent professors. I'm so proud of it. But there's something so surreal about coming from a background where all I had was state education. And then I came to this town, Bristol. Bristol has this reputation of being, you know, open and, open and welcoming and being a diverse city. And the University of Bristol, all, uh, they promote this reputation of being open and welcoming and, and being international. And it's like, well, actually, you're not international. I'm international. And it turns out that I was treated as if I was a, a second-class student by students who have social lead backgrounds, it's almost laughable. You know, like the people who were creating these targeting campaigns and this vilification, like these were students who went to Cambridge, you know, these were students who went to the University of Oxford, students who went to the London School of Economics, and they were making a sport out of bullying a woman who had just gotten into this country, you know, like the student who sort of fixated, created this fixation in me, um, that person went to the University of Cambridge and then they went to the London School of Economics and then you ended up at the University of Bristol. You literally could not get more privileged than that. And and I had to watch through like all of this process, I had to watch these white, British, extremely privileged young people make a sport out of abusing me and all the while i had an institution saying that i had to keep confidentiality that i couldn't say a single thing that i couldn't stand up for myself that i couldn't just just pretend that none of this is happening we'll deal with it we'll take care of it you can trust us and it's like no i i couldn't trust you because eventually it turned out that you were not to be trusted um But it was, it was sickening to watch and, and, and again, this is in the United Kingdom, you know, like out of all of the countries in the world, one of the most wealthiest countries around the globe. And these are students who sort of go from one of these elite institutions to another very elite institution, you sort of handle yourself in that environment, yet they were speaking. In their bullying campaigns, they were speaking about marginalization and oppression and discrimination. And sometimes I wonder if they ever stop to think, wait, hang on a second, I'm doing that to an immigrant woman of color. Um, and it's like they never, they never paused to think about that. And it made oppression something. They use these words, you know, marginalization vulnerability in a very as if it was a fashion, you know, that I can put on and put on. It's like at the end of the day it's like, come on, you're extremely privileged. You couldn't be more privileged than that. Um I mean there's there's disgusting bullies in every institution and in offices around the world. But the the biggest chunk of responsibility falls on the University of Bristol because they saw everything that was happening. And they were aware of the impact and the damage that this was causing to my health and to my studies. And they allowed it to foment. And they created a climate in which, instead of allowing me to even speak, you know, and say, you know what, I don't agree with any of this. I think that this is ridiculous. I think that this is degrading. Instead of allowing me that opportunity, they just created the conditions so that I would be silenced while I was abused, and that is unacceptable, and it has to, and it will be challenged. Uh, Yeah, I don't
1: even know what to say to that, apart from, you know, whatever we can do to support you, please let us know, because this is just, obviously, a horrible situation. And I'm sitting, listening to you, and I'm just wondering, what is it about you, do you think, that is so threatening to to these people who have decided to, to do this? Like, do you know what I mean? I don't...
0: I think, and I think I know this because of the work that I do, you know, it's like, it, it, when I came to the UK, I wanted to do a PhD on this subject. I didn't want it to have practical experience on gender and violence. But what we know from the work that we do is that uh, people bully others when they feel threatened and jealous and resentful. I mean, if you think about it, if you're satisfied with who you are and if you're satisfied with the work that you do, then you would be in no, you would have no reason to target other people, especially over a long period of time, um, and continuously, because that's not going to enrich your skills. You don't become a better writer, you don't become a better campaigner by bullying others. You don't acquire, I think that this is something that they just never realized, it's like you don't acquire the skills and the talent of the people that you bully. When you abuse them, you know, at the end of the day, you're still the same person with all of the deficiencies that led to you targeting others. Um, I think that overall, like broadly, more than just my experience at the University of Bristol, I think that one of the problems that have, that has been created within social justice movements and particularly within academia, is that there's a tendency in the left to sort of make tokens out of sections of the population in which, for example, if you're a liberal, you assume that you have a stronghold on immigrants because you think that because I'm a liberal person, I have the best interest of immigrants at heart and I know what's best for them. I mean, that's obviously coming from the position of someone who is, you know, privileged enough to be able to make the school. But I think that, for example, you know, that if you are a a left-wing person, then somehow you're able to um, be a spokesperson or sort of create tokens out of like other communities of color, like people from diverse racial backgrounds and stuff like that. So I think that that has been happening for a while. And something that I think has happened in my case is that people have a hard time understanding that the person that they think they own happens to have ideas that they disagree with, you know, that the person who on all of these other identities or markers should be one of the people that you have under your wing. That they they can't comprehend the fact that well actually I think your ideas are nonsense or I think that everything that you're doing is problematic you know it it comes from Mm -hmm. this place of ownership and that's something that I felt was very pronounced in my experience at the University of Bristol when all of these students were doing this that if you read the, the subtext of all of these uh, campaigns. It was like they just were outraged at the fact that this woman who just came from the Dominican Republic was not behaving like a proper immigrant and was not deferential to to ideas that I think are counterproductive and detrimental to social justice. So I think that it's coming from a place of ownership and. And again, the biggest responsibility to try to say actually this is unacceptable, we will not allow it. The responsibility was with the institution and they failed. Um, so now in my hands, and I will be more than happy to say, well, actually this was unacceptable all along.
1: As a question, is there um, anything that women who are listening or... Um you know anyone who's interested that they could do to support you in this particular situation.
0: I will let you know in due course.
1: Okay, thank you. Um, and as a um, as a kind of segue, because I'm I'm listening, of course, and I agree that it is from an institutional perspective. Um, it is, of course their responsibility to uh, address this and kind of correct it, not only for you, but also kind of in the future, if that makes sense. Um, So that the the policies are in place um, to protect students. um,
0: The policies are in place. The policies are there. The policies are very clear. It just so happens that it appears that because this was the quote unquote trans issue, they just forgot what policies were. Um it's like that's the that's the interesting thing that it's like I'm not asking them, Oh, you need to write new policies, oh you need to have policies against bullying. It's like they have it, you know? That's the But enforce them. Exactly. You know, it's like you have policies against bullying, you have policies against harassment. And like some of the like a lot of people, especially from the Dominican Republic, like they had a hard time understanding that this was my experience at the University of Bristol because they would say to me, "What the hell, England was the country that created the concept of bullying. And when you go to the train stations, there are um, messages saying we will not allow any sort of abuse. You know, how could this happen? And it's like exactly. I'm not asking anyone to create new policies. The policies are set, but what I think. Well, what ended up happening is going to be decided by other people. But I think that there is a difference between writing down policy when you feel there's a difference between writing the policies and enforcing them Mm -hmm. when things are difficult. You know, I think that every people in life are faced with choices, Um, sometimes between doing what is right, and what is easy, and I think that the university made their own choice.
1: Yeah, I um, I would tend to concur with that statement, Mikael. Is what I would absolutely say. Um, I think one of the things that I wanted to ask you about actually is is particularly about your experiences, kind of growing up in the Dominican Republic and how your perspective has been informed by that, particularly to do with feminism. But also, I think in this context of what you're saying, in the sense of like, well, you're coming to the UK, but it seems like there's certain people who assume that you must think a certain way, in a sense, almost getting it kind of, this sounds terrible, but completely backwards in the sense that actually what what should be happening is that, you know, your particular perspectives and your analyses and how you see the world has been, you know, influenced by your own kind of journeys and your own history, etc. And that actually, that's what's most valuable is for you to be able to kind of come and say, no, this is how I see it, because I'm, I have expertise in this. And this is, you know, what I know from, from my own kind of background, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So I think what I'm trying to ask is what do you think um, growing up in the Dominican Republic has kind of given to, to how you view, uh, shall we say, feminist issues in, in a general sense at the moment?
0: I think that uh, I was fortunate enough to have politically aware. Parent. And even if we don't agree on every political position, like, like we have disagreements on all sorts of issues, my parents and I, my family and I, we are not the same, you know, and, and that makes us stronger because they taught me tolerance. But I am very fortunate that my parents were politically aware. So they showed me that we were living in a country where Half of the population doesn't have drinking water, you know, where teen pregnancy is a reality for too many girls, you know, where girls' access to education is still impaired in very material ways, you know. And once you see that and once you're aware of that, it is very difficult to try to shift to the more liberal, feminist analysis of women's rights in which you prioritize semantics and you prioritize the rhetoric of liberation and oppression as opposed to the material realities of girls and women, which are actually impacted by oppression. And and this not only happened here in the UK, but also when I went to the United States, it was difficult for me to be in classrooms in which I always wanted to do every assignment on violence against women. I always, like, and and aside from my academic work, while I have been a student, I have always done shelter work because I Mm -hmm. feel like that's what I'm really, that I'm really good at. I'm really good at talking with women and their children when they are in a difficult moment and trying to sort of like be present with them. I can do that. That's something that I feel my talents are for. So every time I've been in a classroom, I have supplemented that with shelter work. And it was difficult for me to be in classrooms in which a very U.S.-based version of feminism, uh, you could call it third-wave feminism, you could call it liberal feminism, whatever you call it, but it was this very individual-based way of understanding the women's rights movement that just really created a, a a dissonance for me, and I, I never adapted. You know, it's like I never changed myself to fit into that model. And it's because not only was I always doing shelter work, um, and I did it also, I've done it here in the UK as well, while I've been doing my PhD, it's not only because of the shelter work that I'm doing, but it's also because, you know, I see the realities of women in my country, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Pronouns and identities and all of that kind of stuff, that's not going to change the material conditions of poverty. It never was meant to change it. It was only meant to obscure it. And maybe on a tangent, I think that my experience in the Dominican Republic shaped me in the context of my family. Half of my family is Jehovah's Witness, like, well, practicing, (laughs) and the other half is Catholic, Roman Catholic. So we have this weird family in which half yeah, like half of them believe one thing, the other half believe this other thing. I was in a position in which neither my mom or my dad were religious themselves. They let us grow up, you know, we went through the rituals of some of it, but they let us sort of believe whatever we believe. But the thing with that upbringing is that, I was able to be in an environment in which people believe different things. They had very strong ideas about very particular things. What I learned to sort of grow up with not only a tolerance, but also an acceptance of it, yes, it's perfectly fine for other people to believe whatever it is that they want to believe. You know, it doesn't have to be a personal affront. It doesn't have to be... You don't have to bully them. You don't have to abuse people for not believing what you believe. You don't have to... um, harass them. You don't have, It doesn't have to be a crisis for you. And I think that what I have learned for these past few years at the University of Bristol is how many privileged students and young people here in the UK, how far removed they have become from a tolerant worldview in which you understand that people are allowed to have meetings and opinions and politics that disagree with you, and that doesn't give you the excuse to to abuse them. I mean, if you look at what's happening in women's rights here in the UK, um, Mm -hmm. it is that way that women have to have security when every time they have a meeting to discuss their own sex-based rights, as they are already enshrined in UK law. But that is the climate that has been allowed to fester when you take tolerance for granted when you take open-mindedness for granted, you know and and it is bizarre. you know it's just been surreal to watch in in what is supposed to be such a robust democracy it has been surreal to watch the levels of repression and and intolerance and and disregard for democracy that has been allowed to comment here and that's not just in politics in general but it's having such a horrible effect on the feminist movement as well yeah i mean
1: one of the things that i I highlighted from an article that you wrote for Philia that are women and girls human yet? I think you wrote, all around us, the virulence of patriarchy exacerbates a breathtaking pace, distorting and shape-shifting into ever-novel ways to keep females subjugated. This is a bleak moment in time for women and girls. At the same time, we are witnessing the rise of an energized women's liberation movement filled with passion, courage, and rage. And I just feel like that fits in so beautifully in some ways with with what you're saying, that there is a great challenge and a lot of things kind of happening. But hopefully, the one thing that I will say is I think that there are more women having their eyes opened to the situation now.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's bleak, but I think that what has been happening to the women's movement is that the anger is there. I mean, why wouldn't it be? You know, there's all these injustices and oppressions and discrimination all around us, and women were beginning to sort of create a collective consciousness about it, and obviously, patriarchy found ways to co-opt it. So then we ended up in debates that were semantical. We ended up having discussions about, well, what is a woman, you know, it's like, who knows? Um, You know, it it sort of removed that collective anger from the women's organizations that were set up to address the oppressions of women and the rights of women. You know, it's like there were all these processes that took place to disarticulate the power of women's anger. But obviously that was meant to backfire and it was only a matter of time because you cannot stop women from talking to their friends about what is happening in their lives, you know, from talking to their co-workers about what is happening in their lives, you know, like as as a highlight, you know, the reforms for the Gender Recognition Act has been postponed indefinitely. And this is something that we were, at least in like the campaigning that I've been doing, Like, this is something that we were getting ready for. Like, we were just ready to tackle it, see what's going to happen. And now it just happens that this is all going to be delayed indefinitely. Why? Because women started talking, and they started meeting publicly, and meeting publicly, I think, was a key factor to re-energizing the women's rights movement, because Because I think we kind of all took for granted that, of course, women are able to have meetings and talk about their rights. It's like, why wouldn't they? And then you actually try to have a meeting. And actually, it's bloody difficult. (laughs) Um, I think that it was only a matter of time before all of those conversations that were happening in the background had enough force to start having impact not only on the political sphere, but on the cultural sphere as well. And it's not just about oh well this reforms to this piece of legislation. It's like, yeah, but this there's a lot of policies, there, there's a lot of cultural and societal change that happened even before this piece of legislation was reformed. And that needs to be tackled. But the advantage that we have now is that now we have thousands and thousands of women who are energized and angry and ready to do stuff about it, and they have been doing stuff about it. And what you discover is that Oh, so I just wrote to my MP. Oh, I, I organized a feminist meeting or I organized um, a little meeting for a couple of my friends and we talk about feminist issues. And, and you sort of like realize all these quote-unquote little things that you can do. And it turns out that all of these little things that you've been doing unite to the other little things that other women are doing. And I think right now it's just, I mean, aside from the coronavirus, I think that right now is such an exciting moment politically for the women's rights movement, because now we we know that, yeah, maybe we've been a little bit passive, yes, we have been co-opted, yes, it's outrageous that all of these things have been allowed to comment for such a long time, but now we're aware of it. And once you're aware of something, then you can do something. Absolutely. That's the first step, I think, probably. Um, yeah. And it's an
1: interesting because I, I remember reading somewhere that you you wrote uh, that the teaching bug had bitten you, that you quite like uh, kind of speaking with women. And uh, one of my questions was going to be, how do you think we can connect that energy, particularly with younger women, to get involved in, in feminism, including kind of writing and activism and things?
0: Mm. I think for a, for a number of years, it has been a very difficult time to be a young woman interested in feminism. Because on the one hand, you know, any woman who shows signs of, well, actually, I don't like girly things, and I don't like things. Oh, well, maybe you could be a boy. Like, you get all of that narrative that tells you that, well, if you're not a feminine woman, then it's probably because you're not even female. Um, so it's very difficult, I think, to be a teenage girl, but and young woman. But also, I think that it's very difficult because you're getting all of these conflicting messages from from the people that you're supposed to be looking up. To. Like I wrote an article titled um, "Why Does Liberal Feminism Refuses to Stend Their Male Violence Against Women," and it was because around November 25th, which is the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women. On November 25th, I was looking at some of these feminist websites that I looked up to when I was growing up as a feminist, and I wanted to know, well, what are they doing for November 25th? And there was nothing, you know, like they were talking about fashion friends, they were talking about, um, uh, I don't know, makeup. They were talking about everything but violence with women. And, and then I, I, just, I just sort of asked myself, well, but there's all of this violence going on. Why are the feminist outlets that young women go to? Why are they not centering this? And it's because of what we were saying at the beginning of this conversation. There are deliberate attempts to invisibilize the conversations that really matter, whether that is male violence against girls and women, or whether that is you know, male sex buyers in the sex industry. You know, like the things that truly matter are becoming invisibilized. So I think that it's very difficult to be a young woman trying to find the women, trying to find feminism. But at the same time, I think I think that you can do what we all ended up doing. You know, at one point you did it, and I, at one point I did it too. You just sort of figure like, yeah, well, none of this is speaking to me, so I can create my own thing. Like, for example, I spoke earlier about how at the University of Bristol, the Feminist Student Society ended up presenting and passing a motion trying to ban feminists from speaking about sex-based rights. Uh, the Feminist Society did that. But what ended up happening as well is that some young women who were at that uh, assembly meeting at the Bristol SU, they were there, they were shouted at, they were heckled, you know, people booed her- boot them. Some of them were very distressed, but those young women then went home and in their living room, they created a space in which they would talk about their experiences as women. And that became what is now women's impact. And now then we officialize that group of women and now we're a feminist student society, you know? So out of something really grim and horrible, we managed to create, it was founded by a sister named May, but, like, we all managed to create something that was alternative to the version of watered-down feminism that was being presented to us. And that has become some sort of force, you know. We post public events, and we have all of this consciousness racing, and we do all these things, and we have a website, and we're going to, like, create this platform where women are welcome to write and that kind of stuff. Because women create. And mm-hmm. that's bottom line. Uh, a male style of politics, just aims to destroy and to tear down but women, we create positive things, we create events, we create feminist student societies if the ones that are existing are horrible we, we create organizations, we create little groups where we talk to each other so it's like, you can tap into that, you can tap into all of the rage and the energy and create something that works for you whether it's like art, based activism or joining your local group of radical feminists because I'm sure wherever you are I'm sure there's a group of feminists around you who'd be more than happy to have you I mean there are
1: yeah no I think you're right I think but a lot of it is so much of it is down to women connecting and and speaking and just having that like consciousness raising and the discussions and the sort of like oh okay yes it's okay to think like this it's okay to to do like this like this resonates with me this means something, and then yeah. starting to make sense of things, I think.
0: Yeah. internationally as well. You know, there's a concerted effort to separate women from older women, younger women from older women. Because if you think about it, knowledge and power is transferred by men from generation to generation and authority. Mm-hmm. But with women, it's like we're supposed to be in a constant competition with the women who came before us. And that's just the, the only purpose of that is to sever ties among women and to create discord among women. So that we're not passing the knowledge. I mean, if you think about it, the longer that you have lived, the more knowledge that you have, the more experience that you have in the world. So there's there's a, a perfectly rational reason why patriarchy wants us separated from the generations that came before us in one of the most beautiful aspects of this sort of resurgence in women's rights activism right here in the, in the UK, but also in other countries in the world, is that we are rebuilding those connections and realizing that actually, no, we don't have to kick our, against our mothers. We can actually learn so much from them. And our activism obviously depends, because if you think about it, like a lot of the problems that we're dealing with right now, they're not so different from the problems that the women in the second wave went through, you know? It's all about separating women from their experiences. It's all about invisibilizing women's experiences. So who is in a better position to help us get out of that than the women who have been through that wave, you know, who have been through that backlash? It's all a backlash. Other women have experienced with the same backlash so we could tap into it. And I just feel really grateful that, at least in the campaigning groups that I'm a part of, I get to learn alongside women who are in their 70s, you know, and women who are mothers and have children who are my age, you know? Like, there's this vast source of knowledge that I would not have gotten if I had censored, if I had heed the call of liberal feminism and preoccupied myself with an individual watered down version of feminism which is being sold to women young women
1: absolutely and um, one of the things that I always think is like look these women particularly older feminists they can see it they see the pattern right they can smell the patriarchy from 20 paces like you know I think I'm like no we, we really should we should probably listen because they 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 probably yeah. know exactly what they're talking about because they've seen it before a million
0: times. Yeah. And and the really scary thing, like, for example, at the Woman's Place Bristol meeting that I shared, like, I had a woman come up to me at the end of it and she said something that, I, like, she had been marching, she had been active in the women's rights movement for the past 40 years or something. And it was like an older woman. And I was just like, oh, so you're still here. Like that was a joyful thing. But then she said it has never been this bad, and I was like, oh well, that's not good. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, yeah. <laughs> but, oh no. <laughs> yeah, but she was referring to the fact. I think this was early 2018. She was referring to the fact that it was like this like is coming from so many angles. You know, mm-hmm. if you don't, if you don't conform to femininity. Um, then maybe you should go under the knife and try to adjust to a pattern of how to be a proper non-female. If you do conform to femininity, you should also go under the knife so that you can properly conform to another impossible standard. You know, it's like there's all of these messages that young girls and young women are receiving that are overwhelming Um And I think that it's like these connections, intergenerational connections, have been a lifeline, at least for me. You know, like they've been just a lifeline because they contextualize what has been happening. They contextualize the problems, but also the solutions, the potential solutions. And that's why it's so important for patriarchy to discover that and to make sure that we don't trust older women, that we distrust older women, that we dismiss older women. I do want to say, though, that I feel very fortunate because, at least in the UK, you know, I have the women at the Centre for Gender and Violence Research. They have been extraordinary, you know, like that centre is essentially, not only is it like internationally well known for the, the caliber of the work that they do, but it has been such a humane space filled with integrity and hope for me, because I'm able to, to be among colleagues, some of them are a lot older than me, you know, but they sort of take me in as a colleague, and it's like they contextualize my work as like, oh, well, there's Rachel, you know, and one day Raquel is going to be, you know, like like publishing books, like, like I'm publishing, you know, and like her research is going to be well-known. You know, it's like, it just makes me feel like I am among sisters. Like it's not the type of, there's no competitiveness, there they see me as an up-and-coming researcher and that just makes me feel very giddy you know because a lot of the women there like I just really admire them and I can only hope one day to be like them and it just feels so beautiful to know that they see me as unequal you know so I'm very grateful for that intergenerational connection that I get to make at that center as well.
1: I'm sure it- I'm sure they're grateful to have you and all you bring to the, the center as well, to be honest.
0: The university could be something else.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, when, when you publish your books, I'm going to be very excited to read them. It's going to be awesome. Um, I'm aware that I've kept to you for quite a while, Raquel. I wanted to ask kind of like going forward as Phileas spokeswoman, how do you see um, Phileas playing a role in in part of this ongoing and probably will be ongoing for a very long time uh, project to end male violence.
0: I think that one of the what stands out from Filia is that Filia is very much alive as a feminist organization you know it's like we're doing podcasts and articles and we're getting the input like the one message that i've always heard from the team at Celia is we want the input of women from all backgrounds from from all sorts of perspectives we want to hear where they're at we want to hear what's happening in their lives and i think that's something that makes Celia incredibly powerful is that we have not not only have we not forgotten why we're doing what we're doing but also it's like we're always making an effort to center the voices of women, and not just one type of woman, but all the diversity and all of the like breadth of experience that women have around the world. We try to make sure that filia is an open space for them to feel not only welcome but a part of who we are and what we do. I think that filia can learn from 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 many things, you know. But one of the problems that we Uh, we're able to see during the past couple of years is that when you're not vigilant, then all feminist organizations can become either watered down to the point that they are uh, not efficient at what they set out to do, or they can become co-opted by the very forces that you sought to fight. And I think that at Filia, we have the analysis to be vigilant in preventing that to, from happening, but also we just have this live organization that is so keen to center the lives and experiences of women over anything else. You know, it's not about profit. It's not about us saying, "Oh, we're such a big organization." It's it's not about um, it's not about anything other than we want to create a space for women in the same way that. When we needed a space for women, we found it in Philia. So I think that that's what Philia can offer not only young women, but women all over the UK. It's a space in which like, your voice matters, your experiences matter. We want to create um, not only a conference, but an organization that speaks to the lives of women, that is not disconnected, that is never disconnected from the lives of women, because that is a horrible mistake that should never happen. Um, and that is, current to the actual lives and experiences to women, that is not theoretical, that is not removed, that is not just policies on a piece of paper that has integrity. And I feel so grateful to be a part of an organization that is, is women doing the best that we can. And we could all be watching movies, you know, like we could all be reading books if we wanted to. So we decided, actually, I want to be with other women who feel the same fire that I feel. I want to be with other women who feel the same urgency and anger and passion. And I want to do something positive with that. And I think that Celia is something that is alive and positive. And I'm, and I'm just really grateful to be a part of it.
1: Well, we're incredibly grateful that you are part of our team.
0: And thank you
1: so much for everything, for your work and eloquence and just amazing power and energy and for taking the time to have this conversation with me um, for the podcast.
0: Of course. Uh, I've been needing to do it for a while, you know, and I'm glad that people will get to hear my voice and know who I am. And if you have any questions, you know where to reach me. Um, but yeah, I'm just really honored to be the spokeswoman for Celia because it's kind of like those, those things that when you sort of become involved in social justice activism, it's like you you have to become the person that you needed when, you know, if you've been through any sort of discrimination of oppression, like you become the person that you needed at that moment. And every single one of us at Celia, is like we created the organization that we needed um, at a moment when we needed it. and. And that's the fire that is going through the feminist movement right now. Despite the fact that obviously, you know, some of
1: this horrible stuff, really, that you've had to deal with and ongoing, you know, challenges, as it were. I've had such a lovely time just talking to you um, and listening to you and, and hearing your passion. And especially in this time when things have been so... Um, tumultuous and strange and odd with all the things going on globally and everything. It's, it's nice to sort of, I don't know, think about things that grow.
0: Maybe that's a way to think about it. Um, there's so much, if there's one thing that the past few years in the in the women's pregnant material in the UK has shown us is that we've been up against something that destroys and tears down and closing down meetings and closing down opportunities for women and what we are interested in is the complete opposite and that's why we will persist and eventually win whatever battle we have to win because we have the power of creation and not only are we creating for ourselves but we're creating for other girls and other women and and young women and teenage girls who are looking outside and are feeling um, abandoned and sad and confused and we're creating something that will be there for them when they're ready to join us. And there's something very beautiful that Lisa Marie always says is that, like, we're here for the women, even the ones who haven't joined us yet, you know, like that's Mm -hmm. the truth. Yeah,
1: no, that's true. Um, Raquel, is there anything that you think that I've missed or anything that you want to kind of signpost women to, any listeners to? Uh,
0: I think that I would ask women who are listening, if you would like to write for Celia, Um, if you would like, I mean, especially at times like this, in which we are all experiencing a very difficult moment due to uh, the virus, Uh, you know, we would like to hear from your experiences and we would like to hear what you have to say. And and maybe for the women who are stuck indoors, who have a computer, have maybe some time to write. If you think that, oh, well, you know, they couldn't publish me for X, Y, reason. It's like, forget about all of that. We do want to publish you. <laughs> okay, so all the stuff, uh, like, put them aside. Um, and write for us. We would love to hear what you have to say. And that is not just something that I'm saying because I'm nice, it's like I'm saying because it's true. We want to hear the experiences of women, not only now, but always. And and it just so happens that for women who are so indoors, even if you've never written before, I mean, to be 100% honest, I am a writer. And when I read my own articles, I'm like, wow, that woman is amazing. <laughs> but it's like, like, after the moment that it's published, I'm just like, I have no idea how that happened. Who is this woman who put those words in that order? You know, it's like, wow, she sounds brilliant. Who is she? I want to meet her. Um, but yeah, it's like, even if you've never written anything, that doesn't matter. We want to hear from you. We could help you publish it. So, please get in touch with us and let's have some of your voices published because that is what Filia is about. It's a life organization that can only exist with the voices and the experiences and the input from uh, women and girls, if you're a girl too. Thank you so
1: much, Raquel. Um, thank you so much for your time and for your words and just everything that you do and for being our spokeswoman. Um, of look forward to hearing from you so, so much more.
0: Well, thank you. Uh, Thank you, Sarah, for interviewing me. And thank you always to Celia for being so welcoming and for just giving me the opportunity to be in a role in which not only am I doing something that I feel is important, but I'm putting my, my skills to a cause that I deeply believe in and that's something that I've always want to be grateful for and thank you to the women and maybe a man or two um, (laughs) (laughs) who are listening thank you to the people who are listening for uh, joining us for this this podcast Um, yeah thank you